Beginning in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You know, they say the odds of you dying are pretty good. <laughs> one out of every one person dies. <clears throat> Reminds me of the clever undertaker. He would always sign his letters, eventually yours. <laughs> he knows we can't avoid him. One day your ashes will be sprinkled or your body will be buried and a tombstone will be put over your head. Which reminds me of some interesting tombstones. Here's one. <laughs> I have nothing further to say. Well, I hope so. Ever wondered, where's Waldo? <laughs> there he is under that tombstone. I like this tombstone. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. <laughs> or at least so he thought. How about this one? Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Whoops. <laughs> now there's more to this story Lawrence Cook 1934 to 2004 it reads Ma loves Pa Pa loves women Ma caught Pa with two in swimming here lies Pa <laughs> wouldn't you love to know the rest of that story how about this tombstone here lies Lester Moore Four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. Okay, I thought that was good. How about this one? If you're into brevity, this is a great tombstone. Bye. And last but not least, the tombstone of Mel Blanc, longtime voice of that cartoon character, Porky the Pig. I wish I could say it like Mel does, but it reads, That's all, folks. But that's not all. That message might make for a cute tombstone, but that's not true in regards to death. Death is not all. It is just the beginning. For those outside of Christ, there is a real, quite literal, fire-breathing hell staring at them. But for those of us who are in Christ, there awaits for us an inheritance stored up in heaven to be ours at our glorious homecoming. Paul assures us here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, in him, in Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together according to his will. In the ancient world, there were limited opportunities for education and entrepreneurship and advancement. 
And thus the primary way to accumulate wealth was by inheritance. Frugal families would build up a nest egg for future generations. And inheritance ensured a family's survival. A man looked forward to the day of his receiving his inheritance. And the same is true for us. For we too have stored up riches, paid for by Christ, received in Christ, awaiting us. Hey, when I die, don't anyone say, that's all folks. For joy and ease and pleasure are just beginning for this weary traveler. You know, spiritually speaking, like the Romans of old, on our own, you and I have very little chance of advancement. But in Christ, Jesus has done the work for us. He has satisfied God's justice and he has earned for us God's righteousness. When we step out of this life into an eternity before us, we will enter a glorious inheritance purposed by God, reserved for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Your mind can't grasp, nor can your wallet hold the vastness and the value of your inheritance in Christ. Patrick Henry, the famous American patriot, he said those words, Give me liberty or give me death. When he died, he said the following words. They appeared in his last will and testament and they were read to his heirs. He said, I have now disposed of my property to my family. There is one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. For if they had that and I had not given them one shilling, they'd be rich. And if they had not that and I'd given them the whole world, they'd be poor indeed. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 compares our current sufferings with our future blessings. Paul writes this, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Here, heaven's treasures aren't just referred to as glory, but as an eternal weight of glory. Heaven is a heavy place. In contrast to what you've endured in the past, today's trials may seem taxing and never-ending. You feel like you're under a heavy burden. Your battle with cancer or, or that chronic pain or that nagging debt or the broken relationship or the rejection or the betrayal that you've suffered or that ache that you feel inside that just won't go away. These are the really heavy burdens that you bear. But you need to know, in contrast to the glories of heaven, Paul refers to those afflictions as lightweight, as but for a moment. The blessings of God are weighty and eternal, so much so that they make our present trials seem trivial and temporary in comparison. And never forget where this glorious inheritance is found. Notice again the first two words here in verse 11. In him. All God's inheritance is distributed in Christ. Once there was an old man who had a valuable art collection. He'd spent years accumulating it. It was worth tens of millions of dollars. This fellow also had a sickly son that he loved with all his heart. In fact, when the son died, his father died just weeks later. 
The old man died of a broken heart. Well, according to the father's will, his art collection was to be placed on the auction block. And the first piece that was to be sold was a portrait of his son. Of course, no one was really interested. There were other paintings far more valuable. This painting had very little value to anyone but the father. Everyone wanted to start the bidding with the real art. There was, though, one man, a friend of the family. He had been fond of the man's son, and so he decided to bid a meager $5. Well, at once, the auctioneer, he slammed the gavel down, and he stopped the bidding, and he awarded the entire collection to this friend. It was in the father's will that all of his wealth should go to the person who loved his son enough to buy his portrait. And this is what God has done. He gives us his wealth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He gives all of his treasures to the person who loves Jesus. Love his son above life itself and everything else of value comes with him. In verse 11, we're made heirs. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You know, people who've worked hard to accumulate wealth, they put lots of forethought into their last will and testament. Who receives the money? How it gets allocated? This is a big deal. In fact, there are attorneys who've gone to law school for years and spent lots of money to specialize in estate planning. But God didn't seek the help of an attorney when he went to put together his will. No, he purposed beforehand through the counsel of his own will. In other words, all three members of the Godhead, they put their heads together. The Father who rules and the Son who saves and the Spirit who gives all deliberated together and concocted a plan. And guess who God chose as the beneficiary of his will and infinite wealth? Not the workers who try to prove their worth through great and mighty deeds. Not the martyrs who make great sacrifices to show how deserving they are. No. God makes as his beneficiary the humble, those who confess their sin and rely solely on God's mercy and grace by trusting in Christ. The father wrote his will out before time began. The son died and rose again to activate that will. The spirit is now the executor. He distributes all of God's blessings, but the beneficiaries. Hey, that's you and me. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's salvation's ultimate aim, that our inheritance should be to the praise of his glory. You know, some men flaunt their riches and wealth by indulging themselves. They invest in luxurious surroundings and endless pleasure and expensive toys. They're fashionistas. Their wealth is all about them and their lifestyle. Did you know a recent survey I read it was done by a network of nonprofit charities. They found that families with an annual income below $30,000 donate 4.2% of their money to charity, whereas rich folk give away only 2.7%. Apparently, the richer, the stingier. But not God. From the beginning of time, 
The Godhead deliberated together and chose to bestow his wealth on those who trusted in Christ. God shows off his riches. He brings praise to his glory, not by indulging himself, but by lavishing on us. God glorifies himself by sharing his infinite wealth. And what the Father gave to those who first trusted in Christ, those early Jewish disciples, he has also promised to give to believing Gentiles who come later. Verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed. This was revolutionary news. For a first century reader, here is a stunning headline. Jews and Gentiles are co-heirs of God's inheritance. Recently, I ran across a list of some shocking and stunning newspaper headlines. Some of the most shocking headlines of all time. How about this one? Titanic sinks four hours after hitting iceberg. Or maybe this one. Men walk on the moon. Here's a famous uh, headline. Dewey defeats Truman. Of course, the headline was wrong, wasn't it? Truman had surged ahead in the final hours and won. Here's another one. War on America. You remember that one. That was the day after 9-11. Here's one. Assassin kills Kennedy. How about this one? King Elvis dead. And notice the son's byline there. He was 42 and alone. I don't care how much money you have. It's a terrible thing to die alone. And then how about this one? Martin King shot to death. What an infamous headline. In contrast, here's a headline from 1945. It announced the end of the Second World War. Peace, it's over. But here's the headline that eclipses all the above. In him, you also trusted. Not only did God bestow his grace on the Jewish disciples that first followed Jesus, the kosher Jews, but the Ephesians, those pig-eating Gentiles, they received the same pardon and the same blessing. Under the old covenant, or God's previous last will and testament, he agreed to bless the family of Israel. But God has issued a new will and testament with the coming of Jesus Christ. We call it the new covenant. In Christ, he has agreed to forgive and favor anyone, Jew or otherwise, who trusts in his son Jesus. This is startling news indeed. You see, salvation was poured out in two waves. The disciples who walked and talked with Jesus were obviously accepted and loved and forgiven. But those who came later, would they be any less blessed? And the answer is no. We have received all the blessings given to those who first trusted in Christ. You know, people tend to measure one man's salvation up against the circumstances of another person's salvation. We say, he was saved in, at an old age, whereas she, she gave her life to Christ as a little girl. Oh, she was led by Christ by a friend, whereas he was saved at a point of desperation. His was a jailhouse conversion, where, whereas she's been living for Jesus her whole life. We say these things. Or, or he was saved on his deathbed with his final breath, which reminds me of a 
the baseball legend Ty Cobb. They called him the Georgia Peach, but he was anything but sweet. Mean, ornery. He was a pain to be around. He was known for his dirty tactics on the field and his rowdy behavior off of it. And yet just before he died, he gave his life to Jesus. Ty Cobb was quoted, Tell the boys I'm sorry. It was the last part of the ninth that I came to know Christ. I wish it had taken place in the first half of the first. My point being, not everyone gets saved under the same set of circumstances. God uses different situations. Each of us has our own experience with God. You see, the Ephesians, they came to faith through Paul's teaching in a lecture hall, the school of Tyrannus there in Ephesus. Whereas Paul came to faith on a, by a bright light on the exit ramp off the Damascus freeway. But both had similarities. In fact, they both had two commonalities, and we learn of them here. First, they heard the word of truth. And second, they trusted in Christ. And you see, this is true of every Christian conversion. These two things have to be in place. You have to hear the word of truth, and you have to trust in Christ. Step one, you've got to hear the word of truth. Notice Paul doesn't say truths. Plural, there are many truths or facts in this world, but there is only one word of truth. This is the knowledge required for folks to know God. Understand, there is an irreducible minimum of information that a person must possess to be saved. You can have all the good intentions in the world, a record of good behavior, amazing spiritual experiences, but if you don't have the word of truth, you are condemned and on your way to hell. You know, today, today we navigate a pluralistic landscape where religions collide and come in conflict. And as followers of Jesus, we can be civil. We can discuss the validity of each of the religions. If need be, we can walk away and agree to disagree. But as Christians, there's one thing we can't do. We can never give in on the gospel. No one is saved without the word of truth. And this is why we've been commissioned to share the gospel of Jesus. Without the truth that he died and rose and lives today, a person is lost in their sins. And it's not just hearing the word of truth that saves us. Paul says of the Ephesians that they trusted in Christ. They trusted in that truth. They staked their lives on the validity of Jesus' claims. They leaned into Jesus. And they began to rely on him. And you see, this doesn't happen by osmosis. At some point along the way, a person has to make a decision. You know, I speak to folks all of the time who fail to understand this basic truth. I'll ask them, are you a Christian? And they'll reply, oh yes, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> or oh, I go to a Baptist church. Or sure, I've been a Christian my whole life. Or what do you mean? I live in America. Of course I'm a Christian. But to become a Christian, the Ephesians and Paul, they had to hear the word of truth. And then they had to trust in Christ. They had to decide to step away from their sin to believe in Jesus for forgiveness and to start to live for him. You see, this is why it's so dangerous to say, oh yes, I was born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. 
This is why in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. You're not born a Christian, you're born again a Christian. A person has to decide to trust in Christ or they're not forgiven. And once a person believes, something wonderful happens next. Paul reminds the Ephesians in verse 13, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You see, once you hear the word of truth and you trust in Christ, then God goes to work in you. The Spirit of God invades your heart and melts your stubborn will and ends your rebellious nature. The Holy Spirit bursts in you a love for God and a love for others. It's a glorious thing. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says it best. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is stunning. Do you realize that as a Christian, you are a totally new species of human being who prior to the ascension of Jesus had never walked this planet? The angels look at you and scratch their head. You're strange. A born-again human is something very, very special. You see, the Bible tells us that real Christianity eventually makes us better. But the changes happen over time. Character develops and sensitivities form and habits grow over years of walking with Jesus. In the beginning, you may not behave much better than a non-Christian. But understand, you are immediately different. The moment you give your life to Jesus, you're different. You're alive. Whereas just seconds before you made that decision, you were dead. Christian author John Phillips writes, A Christian is not different in degree from a non-Christian. He is different in kind. Just as the difference between a diamond and a cabbage is not one of degree, but kind. The one is polished, the other crude. But the one is dead while the other is alive. Therefore, the one has what the other has not in any degree whatsoever, life. And such is the difference God sees between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's better to be a live cabbage than it is to be a shining, sparkling, dead diamond. The gift of spiritual life is the direct action of God. It's not something we generate. I hear, then I believe, then God sparks new life in me. But God does more. Having changed us by his spirit, he also seals us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 tells us that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Greek word translated seal is a term with two meanings. It's sort of like our word bear. Bear, what does that mean? That means to carry a load on the one hand. But it can also refer to a furry animal that every now and then appears in an Atlanta suburb. You know, a bear, beware. Likewise, the term seal also has two possible meanings. On the one hand, the word speaks of securing the lid on a jar. The seal that's created with a gasket that prevents leaks. It contains fluids under high pressure. It's sealed. And in many ways, the Holy Spirit does secure us in this way. He preserves us in Christ. I guess you could say he keeps us from flipping our lid and blowing our gasket. 
But that's not what this particular word implies. The Greek word that's translated seal, it refers to a stamp, a brand, a trademark. To seal an item was to stamp it with your own individual mark of ownership. Think of the Holy Spirit as God's coat of arms. The seal was usually applied with some string and some hot wax and a signet ring. You would wrap the string around the package and then you would bury both ends of the string into the melted wax. Then you would press the image on your ring into that soft wax, leaving behind your own personal insignia. You see, Ephesus was a shipping center. And so it was common to see merchants all out on the docks placing their seal on the cargo that they'd purchased. Their seal was, in essence, their proof of purchase. Of course, the shipments were then loaded onto boats destined for foreign ports. They were transported across stormy seas, across rough water, and eventually delivered to their appropriate destinations. That's when, again, that owner would identify what was his by pointing to his own personal seal. And you see, this is the picture of what God does with us. He seals us with his mark of ownership. God's proof of purchase is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. He then sets us on this voyage called life, even over some rough waters. And he brings us to the heavenly dock. And then there again, God identifies us as belonging to him by the seal of the Holy Spirit, still impressed into our package. See, this is how you and others know that you're a child of God, by the activity of the Holy Spirit evident in your life. God authenticates his redemptive work in us by the activity of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God blesses me with the wisdom that I need, or with a surge of power in a moment of weakness, or in, with peace in a turbulent time, this is the needed reminder that I belong to Jesus. It's spiritual evidence that I'm under new ownership. You know, often a person's sealing ring or signet ring was imprinted with his own portrait. Thus the king's seal bore his own face. What belonged to him bore his own image. And this is how God marks us, those of us who belong to him. In multiple ways, God's Spirit impresses upon us the image of Jesus. It's Christ in us. His love and patience and kindness and purity and passion. This is what marks us as belonging to Jesus Christ. God sees and plants His image in us. More specifically, the sealing of an item was not a part of the actual transaction. You see, the commodity was sealed after the deal was done. Whatever was bought belonged to the owner, whether sealed or not. But all new owners were quick to mark their cargo with their seal. Paul points to this subtlety in Romans chapter 4 as he discusses the Jewish practice of circumcision. He says it wasn't the act of circumcision that made Abraham pleasing to God. It was his faith. Circumcision was the mark of ownership that came after he'd believed. It didn't earn or add to his salvation. It just sealed the deal. And this is what the Holy Spirit, the stamp of the Holy Spirit upon our life does. The seal of the Spirit comes after salvation. Again, we're saved by faith and faith alone. But once we belong to God, he acts quickly to mark us as his own. 
He wants there to be no doubt to whom we belong. Realize it's the seal of the Holy Spirit that brings us assurance. If you ever wonder, if you ever doubt whether you really belong to God, if you really are a Christian, you need to ask the Father to seal you with his Spirit. For afterwards, you will know that you know that you know. Once you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, there are no more doubts, no more worries, only absolute assurance. You know, it's interesting. Jesus himself was sealed. In John chapter 6, verse 27, we read, God the Father has set his seal on him. Obviously, whatever it was that the Father put Whenever it was that the Father put his seal on Jesus, we know that that seal didn't make him God's son. Jesus was God's son from eternity past. But when the Father sealed Jesus, the Father was identifying him as his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. And when did this happen? Well, I believe it happened at Jesus' baptism. You remember John dunked him in the Jordan River and then the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And here's my point. When is a person sealed with the Holy Spirit? See, I believe it's when they're baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, this isn't salvation. It comes after the deal is done. After you already belong to him. That's when God marks you as his own. By pouring out his power into your life. This filling is God's seal. When you're saved, the Spirit comes to dwell in you. He warms the wax of your heart. He wraps you in the string of his will. But then he presses in with his ring. This is a separate and subsequent experience. The Holy Spirit impresses us and leaves his image on us. And from that moment forward, you are bolder. And you are less fearful. And you are much more loving. In short, you are more like Jesus. Realize from the instant you're saved, you are chosen by God. You're adopted as his child. You're holy and blameless and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. All your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven in Christ. You are accepted in the beloved. We've been studying about these things here in Ephesians chapter 1. And they're all true. In Christ, you have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Nothing else has to occur to make you any more, to make any of these blessings more real than they already are. Your salvation is a done deal. But when God applies the seal of the Holy Spirit, then suddenly what was believed becomes felt. What you knew in your heart suddenly becomes your experience. It all becomes more tangible. In the words of Peter, it's a joy inexpressible and full of glory. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you're sealed with the Spirit, suddenly now you know that you know that you know. And nobody has to tell you. When a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, the doubts and the insecurities flee like birds scattered by an intruder. You see, the baptism of the Spirit is a point in time experience like water baptism where something happens to you. It's spiritual, not liquid, but you're dripping afterwards. Adelaide Pollard, she describes this experience in her hymn, Have thine own way, Lord. 
have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see. Christ only always living in me. If you want to know of Christ living in you, if you want the world to see Christ living in you, then ask God this morning to fill you and seal you with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 tells us that the sealing of the Holy Spirit can last a lifetime. That's God's intention. Paul writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's intended to be evident until you reach heaven's shore. But we also know from Revelation that seals can be broken, can't they? And they can be tampered with. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit if you don't continue in your faith and in your trust. And thus sometimes we need to be resealed or refilled with the Holy Spirit. And as we learn from the book of Acts, this can happen. It's interesting, the same people that were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 are refilled in Acts chapter 4. Once R.A. Torrey, he was asked if he believed in the second blessing. Oh, I'm, I've been blessed the first time through salvation. I received Christ to dwell in my heart. But he said, do you believe in the second blessing? That you can actually be filled with power and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Torrey replied, Yes, and the third blessing, and the fourth, and the fifth, and a hundred besides. In other words, we can be filled over and over again with the Holy Spirit. This morning, I'm going to pray for those of you who want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, or even want to be refilled. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the church relied on the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the litmus test for true Christianity. In Acts chapter 10, Peter converted the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. Later, when he went to defend his ministry before the church in Jerusalem, he said that the Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles in the same way that he had come upon the Jews at Pentecost. Obviously, in their mind, it was this baptism of the Holy Spirit that was the seal, the proof of God's purchase. The same was true in Acts chapter 19 when Paul first came to Ephesus. There the believers in Jesus at Ephesus, he asked them, you know, have you received the Holy Spirit? They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, let alone be filled. Paul quickly remedied the problem. He prayed for them and they were filled to overflowing. I believe that every true believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, but it is a different experience to have the Holy Spirit come upon you, to be filled with his love and his boldness, for him to mark you as his own, for him to place the seal of his spirit on you that you truly are a child of God, this is a glorious thing. The Old Testament was full of passages predicting this future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And thus in Luke 24, Jesus named this experience the promise of the Father. And here again, Paul uses similar terminology. He says, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us unsure of our relationship with Him. He wants us to see ourselves as He sees us. And to secure our confidence, He seals us with the Holy Spirit. If you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. 
It's not the seal that makes the deal. It only authenticates what's already happened. Paul told us that we were already saved when we heard the word of truth and when we trusted in Christ. But if you want to get rid of the doubts and the insecurities and the question marks, if you want to know that you know and live in a way that the world knows too, then you should ask for the impress of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to ask God to stamp us as his own. And Paul makes one more wonderful statement about the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 14. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? The Holy Spirit isn't just God's seal of ownership. He is also the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I like how the old King James puts it here. He is the earnest of our inheritance. Or maybe even a more modern alternative would be the down payment or the installment or the earnest money on our inheritance. You know, you put a contract on a house for sale and its owner's going to ask you for some upfront money. When you close the sale, the earnest becomes part of the purchase price. But you pay it in advance as a token of your intentions. And this is God's intent in giving us the Holy Spirit. He promises us heaven, this glorious inheritance. But we get the Spirit as an upfront blessing, as a down payment on our future inheritance. The Spirit is proof that God's intentions toward us are legitimate. You know, when my kids were little and Kathy was planning a late supper, she would always give the kids what she called a T.O. It was short for tied me over. Time for a T.O. It was an advanced nibble of what was cooking to get them through the wait. You know, it was just a little spoonful. Just a little piece of bread maybe rolled up. Just an advanced nibble of what was cooking and would be served shortly. But it got them through. They relished the T.O. And this is how we should think of the Holy Spirit. He's our T.O. He's our tied me over. You know, Fanny Crosby wrote one of my favorite hymns. It's called Blessed Assurance. And that's what this is all about. Blessed Assurance. But there's a line that refers to the Holy Spirit. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is what the Holy Spirit brings to our lives, a foretaste of glory. The Spirit is God's down payment on our inheritance. As we read earlier, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven is full of wonders and amazements and eternal delights. But in the very next verse, Paul writes this, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Hey, the closest we get to comprehending the glories of heaven, the closest we get to a little taste of heaven here on earth, is the joy and peace and power we receive through the Holy Spirit. He is our T.O. The Greek word translated guarantee here is the word arabon. And it's still used in modern Greek for engagement ring. I like that. 
The Holy Spirit is the promise. He is the pledge that Jesus gives his bride that he'll be back. And that he will be all that we ever needed. He will provide all we ever need. The Holy Spirit is the absolute assurance of this future inheritance that we've been promised in Christ. Recently on NPR, National Public Radio, there's a program, it's called The American Life. And it hosted an episode called The Devil Inside Me. Listeners were invited to call in and talk about the voice inside their heads. You heard that voice lately? The voice inside their heads. Did they ever have problems managing unwanted thoughts? That was the theme of the show. Well, the show's host couldn't believe the response. He stated later, he said, It was like people had been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them this question. One female caller said, The voice is totally out of control. It's got this life of its own and I can't tame it. You know, often... New Christians are tormented by an inner voice that speaks doubts about their salvation. I believe it's the ploy of Satan to interject such thoughts. Oh, you're not really saved. After all you've done in your life, how can you think God would love you or that he would forgive the likes of you? Who in the world are you kidding? Christians who struggle with assurance, they live in limbo between doubt and hope. A life of faith that's bombarded with uncertainty, it never gets off the ground. It never really flies. One of the NPR callers was asked, do you feel like the voice is winning? The woman replied, right now, yeah, I think I'm in serious trouble to be honest. How do you silence those voices in your head that want you to doubt God's mercy and his grace? That want you to doubt God's love for you? How do you silence those voices? How do you know that you know that you're a child of God? Well, there's a number of steps I suggest that you take. First, you need to remember your salvation experience. I would even suggest that you write down the date and the time in your Bible. Just write it on the front page of your Bible so that you'll never forget it. That's a good idea. I'd also suggest that you keep your eyes on Jesus and the price that he paid. Hey, look up some reassuring verses and commit them to memory. That'll help. Hang out with Christian friends that'll reinforce your faith. You just need to stop listening to those feelings and really start learning to walk by faith. All of these things are helpful suggestions. But ultimately, the best way to gain absolute assurance of the redemption that God has promised to us is to ask God to seal us and to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the light, my friend, that drives out the darkness The baptism of the Holy Spirit is tangible evidence that you belong to Jesus. It will drive away all of your doubts. Nibble from time to time at God's glory. And you'll look forward to what's on the horizon. Savor a foretaste of heaven. And you'll never doubt that it exists. Real assurance is possible. You can be sealed with the Holy Spirit this morning. If you'll just ask.